Welcome back to the Big Amateurs of Monologues. My name is Richard Ford, and I'm your host. Just a quick reminder that all of my podcast materials can be found at my podcast website, and that is bigamateurism.com. And then I've got some good stuff in a blog that's been up for a little over two and a half years now. And the name of the blog is cagerredux.com. That's C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X.com. All right. Today is Tuesday, August 10th, 2021, and I've got a lot to talk about here. (laughs) I had taken a little break and hadn't published an episode. I was moving forward in this perfect storm discussion, and we had gotten through the Mark Walker bill, and I was heading into the working group's report. But I have to weave in something here that really is relevant to a central theme of my perfect storm analysis, and that is the NCAA as propagandist. And on August 3rd, just a week ago, The NCAA's outside law firm, hired by the NCAA, published its report on an investigation into gender equity issues arising from this year's men's and women's Division I men's basketball tournaments. And the story of how this investigation came to be is pretty well known. And just a real quick synopsis of how this issue came into the public domain. The men's tournament was in Indianapolis and the women's tournament was in San Antonio. And there were some logistical challenges because of COVID and the testing protocols and all that. But an Oregon women's basketball player named Sedona Prince, and I've talked about her a bit because she's also a plaintiff in this house suit that's pending out in California. I did an episode on that lawsuit, and you can check that out. But Ms. Prince has been an outspoken critic of the NCAA and really in the context of gender issues. And she published some photos. This is in late March, I think, just as we're heading into the tournament. But she published some photos on social media, side-by-side photos, showing the disparity in the facilities for the men's tournament in in Indianapolis and the women's tournament in San Antonio. And it was really eye-opening. I mean, it was really embarrassing. And these weren't staged. These weren't exaggerated. There were some obvious and really unacceptable differences in the quality of the facilities. And I'm going to talk about that when I get into the report here, because that's an issue that's easily fixable. And the NCAA really got caught with its pants down here. And that has happened with unacceptable frequency under Mark Emmert's leadership. And we'll we'll talk about that as well. But looking at these issues is really a challenge because the gender equity issues are huge. And I haven't talked a lot about gender equity in episode 12, which I titled Iron Thrones Conflations and a Gender Equity Teaser. Uh, This was post oral argument in Austin. And I talked about this a bit because the story had just broken. And the NCAA hired this outside law firm, Kaplan, Heckler, and Fink, 
to conduct an independent review of uh, gender equity issues arising from the basketball tournaments. But it takes a while to really process this information. The reports were released on August 3rd, and they're lengthy. The primary report by Kaplan is about 115 pages long, and it's dense, and it has uh, a lot of data and footnotes everywhere. And to break down a report like this takes a lot of time. And then there's a second report here, and it's the long substantive report. Kaplan hired an outside consultant named Desser Sports Media, and they specialize in media and sponsorship deals, and they've done a lot of contracts, and they're very familiar with the media side and the broadcast side and the big sports entertainment side of this marketplace. Kaplan retained Desser to put together a review of the NCAA's media and sponsorship rights. That report's about, I don't know, 90 pages long. So you've got about 200 pages of really dense material, and I have been through it all. I've spent more time on the Kaplan report than on the Desser document. And I have outlined my analysis into the broader themes of the podcast and the broader themes of the NCAA as a monolithic single regulatory authority in college sports and how it has used propaganda to achieve virtually unchallengeable authority. And so for the purposes of analyzing the perfect storm, the 2019 to the present. The timing of this is actually perfect because as we get back into the timeline and we're looking at how the working group, the federal and state legislation working group that became known as a quote unquote name, image, and likeness working group. When you look at the way that group was formed, the propaganda that it spewed out to define the terms from the very beginning of the discussion on name, image, and likeness, you really see the NCAA's propagandist instincts working double time to uh, cement in this false narrative that led the public to believe that the NCAA was serious about voluntary rules changes on name, image, and likeness. And now looking at this gender equity issue and reverse engineering the NCAA's propaganda, and this goes back decades, there have been task forces and commissions and committees and independent consultant reports and all of this stuff specifically designed to lead the public to believe that the NCAA placed gender equity high on its priority list and it's contained the principle of gender equity is in the NCAA constitution in the principles for the conduct of intercollegiate athletics. It's basic principles along with the principle of amateurism and the principle of institutional control and responsibility and the principle of athlete well-being is the principle of gender equity, including a voluntary assumption of an obligation that the association not engage in gender bias. And we're going to talk about the importance of that, particularly given the fact that the NCAA has been very effective at the legal level in shielding itself as a national organization from any gender equity liability because the uh, courts have been pretty friendly to the NCAA on that. And there's a U.S. Supreme Court case from 1999 that basically said the NCAA couldn't be sued under Title IX because they did not receive federal funds. And that's a prerequisite to Title IX liability. 
So there are a lot of issues to, to talk about here. But this report, this Kaplan report and the Desser companion report, suffer from some of the same limitations that all these prior inquiries do. But what's important about these reports is their timing. Because this is coming at a time when the NCAA is on the ropes. And I think people are finally starting to peel back the layers of dishonesty and propaganda and false promises and distortions and delays and broken promises. And they're beginning to say, wait a minute, this whole model isn't working. And it goes beyond gender equity. It goes beyond the men's and women's Division One basketball tournaments in 2021. These are systemic problems. And we're not addressing them by dancing around all these propaganda games that the NCAA's been playing. It's really a game of whack-a-mole from the NCAA standpoint. And they just, an issue comes up and then they try to get ahead a of it by leading from behind, which is what they always do. And Mark Emmert is really a master of that. That. And then making a bunch of noise in the media and making a bunch of noise at the public relations level and waiting until it just sort of goes away. And that is the pattern, not just with gender equity, but with every issue that the NCAA addresses and has to address to preserve the appearance of commitment to its basic values. And it's just been a grand virtue signaling game that, quite frankly, is not that dissimilar from the industry that the NCAA serves. So you see a lot of these same tactics in higher education. We'll talk a little bit about that, too. But back to the timing. The timing here is so important because I really think that this has gotten to a point with the NCAA's mismanagement and Mark Emmert's anti-leadership on these issues. And I think the report reflects that. Mark Emmert gets a free pass in many ways. And we'll, we'll get into that in a little more detail. But some of the things that the report criticizes, like the composition of these long-term contracts that have basically held women's basketball hostage to the NCAA's revenue maximization policy. But the report says very little about why those contracts are so important to the overall business model of big-time college sports and how they come into existence. It's just like they just materialize. But under the NCAA executive regulations, the sole person responsible for negotiating the broadcast media rights and all licensing rights for NCAA intellectual property and championship properties is the NCAA president, Mark Emmert. And there's not a suggestion in that report that that is Emmert's responsibility and that these contracts have been negotiated in large part to protect the NCAA administrative state and the NCAA national office bureaucracy in perpetuity. When you have a contract going into the 2030s, that basically provides an endless supply, a pipeline of cash to the NCAA, you got a problem. And the NCAA's arrogance and its arrogant leadership through Mark Emmert is a product of its belief in that national office bubble that its gravy train is going to last forever and there's not a damn thing anybody can do about it. And they've got the most powerful broadcast media outlets in bed with them to pump this message, this message that this is just the best thing that's ever happened in college sports. CBS, Turner, and ESPN. ESPN's a part of this, and nobody's talking about ESPN. And ESPN isn't saying a whole lot about that. That's another interesting aspect of all this. But the timing really is interesting to me because you have to believe that behind the scenes, 
there has to be some discussion about a change in leadership. I pay attention to this NCAA website and uh, the propaganda that the NCAA puts out. And, you know, they leave a trail like a caterpillar. And you can look back over what they choose to, to talk about, how they talk about it, and then more importantly, sometimes what they don't talk about and draw some intelligent conclusions about what's really going on behind the scenes. But there hasn't been much discussion now on the backside of this report. But this report also begs the question of who the hell is in charge? I've been asking that question since the beginning of my writing two and a half years ago and really drilled down on that in this podcast. And every time an issue like this comes up, you come away, particularly after 200 pages of analysis by these two outside external review bodies, you just come away thinking, who is in charge here? And there's virtually zero discussion about the role of the NCAA president in all this. They isolate on the senior vice president for men's basketball. And again, we'll get into all that stuff, but Emmert kind of gets a free pass. And there's absolutely no telling where in the world the Board of Governors is on this because they released an independent statement after this report came out. And I just want to read this real quick and then say a couple things about what I think might be happening behind the scenes. And then we'll get right into this report. But it's a short uh, press release, but you really have to look at how the language is put together here and what the messages are. So the Board of Governors says it's a statement on gender equity report. The NCAA Board of Governors is wholly committed to an equitable experience among its championships. We know that has not always been the case, and the instance of the Division I Women's Basketball Championships is an important impetus for us to improve our championship experience so it is not repeated. This report provides useful guidance to improve our championships. We have directed the NCAA president to act urgently to address any organizational issues. (laughs) We have also called him to begin work this week with the three divisions and appropriate committees to outline next steps, develop recommendations, and effectuate change. We will continue to review the process and recommendations in the Gender Equity Report as we move forward to strengthen championships for all student-athletes. So, I mean, some of this is damage control. They're clearly trying to limit the importance of this report to the championships and specifically to the basketball championships. If they can sort of quarantine the issues that way, then it may draw attention away from the importance of the report's findings with respect to the overall business model and the dysfunction in it and the complete absence of leadership at the NCAA national office. The NCAA Board of Governors is distancing themselves from this, and they are pointing to Mark Emmert as the person who has primary responsibility for fixing this. And the board says they're asking the NCAA president to act urgently to address any organizational issues as if there may be none. (laughs) The suggestion there is that there may really be nothing to look at here, but, you know, if there are any issues. But they are clearly pointing to Emmert and they are saying that they have directly talked to him and instructed him to begin work this week and to talk about appropriate commitments and next steps and develop recommendations and effectuate change, all this bureaucratic BS. But there's no question here that they are saying, look, this isn't our issue. This is the president's issue. This is the NCAA president's issue. And this reflects just a profound 
really distressing denial on the Board of Governors. Because remember, they gave Mark Emmert a contract extension in the heat of this scandal. And this broke in late March and in the April meeting, April 2021 meeting, the NCAA, without any discussion, without any response, without even speaking to the media, they refused to speak to the media about this, but they extended Mark Emmert's contract into 2025. So there had to be some discussion and it was a unanimous decision. And I went back and looked at the report of that meeting and I think all of the board of governors were in attendance. So it was a unanimous vote by the full board of governors and they have offered no explanation of why they did that. And now they are pointing the finger at Mark Emmert and saying, this is his deal. This is his show. And that's just an interesting misdirection of responsibility uh, on the part of the Board of Governors. And nobody's calling out the Board of Governors. <laughs> and since August 3rd, we haven't heard a boo from the Board of Governors. And remember, it was just a couple of weeks ago that independent Board of Governors member Robert Gates came out and made bold proclamations about this NCAA constitutional committee that was going to completely overhaul the way the NCAA is structured. We haven't heard anything on that. And the NCAA Board of Governors hasn't even announced who's on this committee. <laughs> but again, it's all insiders. And that's one of the important themes of this whole inquiry into gender equity is that all of these external advisors and all these independent decision makers and investigators are still looking to the NCAA to change on its own. And that's not going to happen. And that's exactly what this Kaplan report does. It, it falls back on the same tired narrative that the NCAA has used for decades now to have some external review and yeah, there's some slaps on the wrist and there's some recommendations and the NCAA can say, oh yeah, we're going to do something on that. And then they do nothing or they do something symbolically and then reverse course. And a perfect, a perfect example of that occurred just a week ago at the NCAA Board of Governors August 3rd meeting where they quietly slipped in a change in policy on how it conducts its investigative work on infractions and enforcement and how it processes those cases. And remember, the Commission on College Basketball in 2018 said there are all kinds of conflicts of interest built into this process, and you can't trust the NCAA infractions and enforcements process because it is tainted with conflict of interest. So the NCAA allegedly put together an independent review process where a school could track it through that process that was less deferential to the NCAA's enforcement and infractions team's recommendations and investigative work. And the NCAA just pulled that and they said, it's too cumbersome, it's taking too long. And the reason that it was taking so long is that these independent reviewers were questioning the substance and quality and reliability of the NCAA's investigative work product. And that's precisely what they're supposed to do. So NCAA just said, screw that. We're just uh, pulling that process, putting it on the back burner, and we're just going to have a process that is more streamlined and more efficient, which takes you back to the very bad actor tactics that the NCAA used for decades in its enforcement and infractions process. And nobody's talking about that. 
So looking at these suggestions and these recommendations that are all based on the NCAA's willingness to change voluntarily, you have the same dynamic. And the NCAA and the Board of Governors, they may come in and say, oh, yeah, we'll consider a combined Final Four and we'll consider asking ESPN to take another look at these contracts that inhibit the competitive bidding for the women's basketball tournament. We'll look at all that stuff and, you know, we'll see what we can do. And in that regard, I just want to note, and this is something, again, that the report suggests, but doesn't come out and say, and this is so, so important. We've had, since 1992 and the initial gender equity task force that the NCAA put together, and then this Val Ackerman report, which was paid for by the NCAA, and nothing was done on that. You have all these instances of the suggestion of critical self-examination, and then nothing. You have nothing. And then you have, in 2021, at the women's basketball tournament, a single social media post by a 20-year-old athlete that does more in a nanosecond than the NCAA has done in 30 years. What does that tell you? It tells you the NCAA isn't going to do a damn thing unless it's forced to. And again, I think that may be the most important message to come out of this. And we're going to go through the report. And it does raise some interesting issues that I think are worth looking at and getting into the discussion. But you've just got a bunch of in-system stakeholders, including prominent female decision makers, coaches, conference commissioners, people on these committees who are benefiting from the status quo. And the whole purpose of this investigation is to challenge the status quo because it has failed miserably. But these leaders of women who are making multi-million dollar salaries are the ones that the ESPN and CBS and the mainstream media are going to for quotes. And they are covered up in conflicts of interest, massive conflicts of interest. So my hope in looking at this statement from the Board of Governors is that some subset of the Board of Governors or some others who hold influence in college sports are going in and sitting down with Mark Emmert in August of 2021 to do what Senator Barry Goldwater, House Minority Leader John Rhodes, and Senate Minority Leader Hugh Scott did in August of 1974, and that is tell their leaders that it's time for them to move on. It's time for them to resign. So Goldwater, Rhodes, and Scott sat down with Richard Nixon on August 7th of 1974 and said, Mr. President, it's over. It's over. You have no cards left to play. You're done. Move on for the good of the country. (laughs) It is time for that conversation with Mark Emmert. But who's going to have it? Who, who are the people making the decisions? Who's going to have the influence? Who's in control? And we're back to the same issues again and again and again. And you have the circular firing squad that Condoleezza Rice talked about. And when you look at the dysfunction in the system and how the propaganda campaign has been the central plank of NCAA governance, the lack of accountability actually serves institutional interests. And nobody's ever responsible. Nobody's at fault. And that Board of Governors statement after the report was released on August 3rd could be read both ways. You know, there's a sense of double down and we'll take a look at it. But and then there's also this pointing the finger at Emmert 
and saying, this is your job. This is your, this is in your wheelhouse. You got to make something happen here. And so we don't know what's going on behind the scenes. And again, I think it's going to be dictated not by what's best for college sports and what's best for these athletes. It's going to be what's best for the NCAA, what's best for the national office's bureaucracy, what's best for CBS, what's best for ESPN, what's best for Turner, and what's best for the big-time powerful market participants here. Because that's all that matters. That's all that's ever mattered. And we have this gender equity context to evaluate the hypocrisies in the system again. But the way this is structured, nothing's going to change. So at the very beginning of this report, there's some bold statements and proclamations. And they talk about all these prior reports and that they were a failure and that they wind up just sitting on some shelf. And we don't want this report to just sit on some shelf. But the way this report was initiated, the way it was constructed, and the recommendations that it's made, it is destined to sit on the shelf. And the reason for that is that it leaves to the NCAA the responsibility for changing on its own, and that is not going to happen. So yeah, it's been a little quiet on the propaganda front from the NCAA and the NCAA Board of Governors, but maybe, maybe. They're having that Nixon conversation because it sure is time. And I don't think Emmert's the kind of guy who's going to go quietly. (laughs) And we, again, if the Board of Governors decides that they need a change in leadership, boy, have they got a lot of explaining to do because of the contract extension that was just a few months ago. But there is zero information coming from this body. They won't justify a single decision that they've made or make anybody available to speak to how they have been making their decisions. And that is just another problem with the entire business model and the regulatory structure. And in the face of this regulatory mismanagement that runs through the NCAA national office, the NCAA is still going to Congress and it is still requesting absolute federal protections and immunities that will lock into federal law this really distressing business model. And what is the Board of Governors going to do if they fire Emmert or force him to resign? What does that mean for that campaign? And that really comes down to some fundamental leadership issues. If they think that campaign hasn't changed because of what's happened since April, then we got we just need to clean house in the Board of Governors and start from scratch or just dismantle the whole NCAA, just put it into receivership. You know, that may be the most intelligent option here because this, the lack of leadership is just stunning. It's just stunning. And these people have been living in this bubble of denial throughout the perfect storm. And they just keep doubling down on arrogance, incompetence, and dishonesty. And that's the business model. And I just don't know how they think that under these circumstances, they can go to the United States Senate now with any credibility. And the more credible response would be, yeah, we really need to change directions here. And let's just for a second, before we start talking about all these fundamental changes in their governance structure and taking a look at our constitution and all that, while you're looking at your constitution, why don't you look at that section on gender bias? You know? Look at what is actually in that constitution. Do you even freaking know? Have you? Do, they, do these people know what's in the NCAA constitution? What they have committed to? 
But maybe the better approach would be to just say, we're not getting it done. And we just need to bring in a whole new team here in transition to decide whether this organization's worth saving. And if so, what it ought to look like. That's not going to happen with the people who are sitting in the decision-making seats right now because they created this mess. They doubled down on this mess. And now they're pointing the fingers over this mess. So what's going to happen here? What is going to happen and who is going to decide? We'll just have to wait and see. All right. So let's get into this report and let's first talk about how it came into existence and who the people are and what the charge was and all that stuff. Again, with this overarching understanding that this is another whitewash job. And that's not a criticism of the Kaplan firm or of this Desser company. It just reflects the reality that the NCAA initiated this investigation under duress and in the face of a public relations nightmare. They paid for the work product. They set the parameters for what this law firm was going to look at. And the final conclusions and recommendations all run through NCAA voluntary decision-making and voluntary changes. Those are undisputed. And in that context, there's zero expectation that the NCAA is going to do a damn thing. And just to emphasize that point, I guess this would be a good time to point out that something that really hadn't gotten a lot of attention, but the House Committee on Oversight and Reform has been paying attention to the NCAA. And there are three members of that committee, Carolyn Maloney, a Democrat from New York, Jackie Spire, a Democrat from California, and Mickey Sherrill, a Democrat from New Jersey. I hope I've pronounced those names correctly. All women. And they have been looking into some gender equity issues independent of this investigative team that Kaplan put together and independent of the NCAA's administrative state. And they issued an important release uh, on this point of whether the NCAA is capable of doing anything on its own. And the title of it says, Maloney Spire and uh, Cheryl call on NCAA to take actions to address gender equities following release of new report. But the purpose of the report was to say, this is a quote, this, meaning the Kaplan report, is just the latest review to find grievous gender equities within NCAA athletics. We are releasing documents showing that for decades, NCAA has known about these issues and has ignored recommendations similar to those issued today. NCAA must show its commitment to gender equity with actions, not just words. We will continue to conduct oversight to ensure NCAA undertakes strong, swift, and meaningful steps to address its long-standing failures. And I don't trust anything that comes out of Washington. There's no telling what all these relationships look like. And one of the things that's, that is distressing about this statement is that they're coming back to saying, oh, NCAA, you need to do this. And well, we have oversight, but who knows what all the alliances are and that will all, all play itself out. But on its face, what they're saying is an important point, And that is that we've been talking about this issue for decades We've been listening to your propaganda about what you're going to do for decades, and you haven't done a damn thing. 
So we don't really trust you and we're looking over your shoulder, but you really have to take action, take action, take action. And that was a theme of the report. And so we'll see what the House does if the NCAA just comes back with these milquetoast recommendations. But a lot of this at the political level is really just gamesmanship. And you don't know what the relationships are. Who knows? Who knows? But the point is well taken. And that is, if we're looking to the NCAA for voluntary change, we may have a problem. So this investigation was initiated in March and the NCAA and Mark Emmert issued a press release on March 25th on the propaganda website. Here's what Emmert had to say. The NCAA will continue to aggressively address material and impactful differences between the Division I men's and women's basketball championships right off the bat. We'll aggressively continue, continue to address. Yeah, okay, you've been addressing those, Mark. Material and impactful differences. Well, who decides what's material and impactful? Who decides? While many of the operational issues identified have been resolved, we must continue to make sure we are doing all we can to support gender equity in sports. As part of this effort, we are evaluating the current and previous resource allocation to each championship so we have a clear understanding of costs, spend, and revenue. Furthermore, we are examining all championships in all three divisions to identify any other gaps that need to be addressed both qualitatively and quantitatively to achieve gender equity. To assist the NCAA in this effort, we are retaining the law firm of Kaplan, Heckler, and Fink, which has significant experience in Title IX and gender equity issues to evaluate our practices and policies and provide recommendations on steps we can take to get better. I have made clear that Kaplan Heckler and the staff supporting them will have direct access to the Board of Governors to discuss any issue that may arise during their work while Kaplan Heckler is conducting this review and assessment. While it is still very early in the process, we hope to have these preliminary assessments in late April with a final report this summer after all of our championships are complete. Now... <laughs> You can look at that a lot of different ways, but I see this as uh, Emmett really just minimizing the issues here. And oh yeah, you can have access to the board of governors. These people, the, these people that just gave me a contract extension, and that'll be transparency from our standpoint. I, I don't know how you respond to that, really. And the notion that any external investigator, any external review body is going to be able to do a thorough, comprehensive review of gender equity issues in the NCAA in a couple of months is just silly, really. You know, there's a lot of stuff in this report, but a lot of it's not new. Again, these are issues that have been bounced around for decades now. So just like with some of these other reports outside of gender equity, like the Commission on College Basketball, so much of what they talked about had been discussed as part of reform efforts for decades. <laughs> and the NCAA had just stiff-armed it. And we have the same dynamic here. And so I just want to say a couple things about this type of report, this approach of an institution finding itself in hot water and then having 
a standby external regulatory authority, usually a law firm, to come in and do an external review. This happens a lot in big-time scandals. So a lot of the big-time powerful Power 5 schools who find themselves in the crosshair of NCAA infractions and enforcement issues, they do the same thing. And they have a, a firm that comes in and tries to preemptively set the narrative and define the terms of the discussion and come out with some recommendations and it's an independent review. But these firms are paid by the institutions that are in, that are in hot water and they have a, an open dialogue back and forth. And the goal here is to try to avoid responsibility for the, the things that you have been accused of doing wrong. <laughs> that's the ultimate goal. And that's true here. And remember, the NCAA chose Kaplan. Kaplan didn't uh, choose the NCAA. Kaplan is a boutique firm. It's up and coming. Their lead partner, Robbie Kaplan, has a really amazing resume. These people are exceptionally well-credentialed and exceptionally bright, and they're ambitious, and they're really making a run to be a high powered big-time player. And they've moved into Washington. So they're laying the uh, framework in D.C. for uh, a strong presence in, in inside the Beltway work, both litigation work and regulatory work. And they have pitched themselves from a marketing standpoint as sort of this avant-garde kind of progressive boutique firm, but they're representing corporate clients in higher education, the institutional interests and Wall Street interests and all that. And so, and this is purely intuitive, but I just sense some dissonance between the way that Kaplan is marketing her firm and the clients are actually serving and the work they're actually doing. And again, at a gut level, I just don't see the NCAA hiring a law firm to do this kind of work unless they felt pretty confident that, for the most part, that work was going to fall within what the NCAA actually wants. And in many ways, Kaplan is the perfect representative for the NCAA because she has a resume and a public persona that she has purposely groomed, it appears, as a gender equity advocate. But she's also working for interests that have a history of suppressing gender equity rights. And I guess a cynic might say that's a perfect match for the NCAA because that's uh, very similar to how the NCAA does its business. Uh, One face for the public, one face for how it operates behind the public veneer. So I don't know. It'd be interesting to see how that evolves. But it's a small firm as well. And I read an article that one of the point people on this NCAA gender equity report actually was brought in from Congress explicitly for this purpose. But let's not make any mistake about what the nature of the relationship is here, because the NCAA is paying their bills. The NCAA selected them. The NCAA decides the scope of their work. And the NCAA ultimately is responsible for deciding the extent to which they are going to provide information and and cooperate. And there's an interesting sort of tension on, on that point that comes through in the report, at least it did to me. And at the very beginning of the report, Kaplan does a smart thing, and they identify the review process and scope 
and they talk about what they had been asked to do. They say in the second paragraph of this section, the NCAA guaranteed Kaplan complete independence in its work and agreed that the firm could gather whatever information we believed necessary. The NCAA fulfilled that promise, cooperating fully in our fact-gathering efforts by providing documents and information requested, making well over a hundred NCAA executives, employees, and committee members available to us and facilitating as appropriate our interviews with more than a hundred external stakeholders. The NCAA further committed to respect the confidentiality of our communications with and the anonymity of any sources who asked to be identified to the public or the NCAA. The NCAA announced that Kaplan's independent findings and recommendations would be made public. Okay. And then they say, while the NCAA staff were given an opportunity to confirm the accuracy of certain facts, like budgetary numbers, the NCAA did not approve this report or change any of its recommendations before it was issued. First of all, it looks like that the people that they talked to were insiders, were mostly insiders. And then they facilitated as appropriate our interviews with more than 100 external stakeholders. But then just on the very next page, we get this. And they say, let's see, actually it's two pages uh, away. They talk about the various people that they talk to and they have the external stakeholders. And they say, we heard directly from key stakeholders and all that stuff. But they don't really say who procured those external stakeholders and who they were. They talk about categories of people. We don't have a list of people. That would be nice to know. It would be interesting to know exactly who they talked to and what their interests were. And that would tell us a lot. But then when they talk about the NCAA as a source of information and, and who they talk to, they say that Kaplan requested, received, and reviewed thousands of pages of internal documents from the NCAA, including from NCAA committees, the Board of Governors, the Division I Board of Directors, the Division I Council, and relevant NCAA staff. And then they drop a footnote, footnote 12, that says... While the NCAA was not able to provide Kaplan with all the requested documentation, it is our view that the NCAA made a good faith effort to substantially comply with the requests for documents, that Kaplan has sufficient information to assess the issues and make recommendations, and that obtaining additional documents would be unlikely to substantially change the report or its recommendations. Now, you know, I don't want to get too deep in uh, picking this thing apart, but that is not an inconsequential footnote. And the fact that they dropped it is important. And that footnote really would have been more appropriate two pages earlier when they were talking about all this great cooperation that the NCAA gave them. But this is meaningful. And I guess what I would just say to this is that it's clear from this footnote that they requested information that the NCAA didn't provide. And then they say, well, they made a good faith effort. How do they know? We're talking about an institution that has engaged in conduct, which I think is hard to categorize as good faith conduct in its transparency on these very issues. And the report reflects that. And let's change the facts a little bit. If Kaplan is representing a group of female athletes in a suit against the NCAA, and they requested documents or subpoenaed documents, 
And the NCAA came back and said they weren't going to provide them for whatever reason. Do you think that the Kaplan lawyers are just going to say, oh, okay, they made a good faith effort. And we don't know what those documents say, but based on what the NCAA kind of suggests that they might say, they probably wouldn't change our opinion much. Who knows? But anyway, we'll just give them a free pass on that. Hell no. (laughs) They're going to march in. And the fact that those documents weren't produced is the red flag. And that tells a litigator that there's stuff there that they don't want you to see. That's the long and short of it. So they would march in and they would demand a, a hearing on a motion to compel those documents and the, that information. But Kaplan can't do that here because this isn't a lawsuit. It's not an adversary proceeding. And Kaplan has no way to compel the uh, production of those documents or that information, whatever they were looking for. They don't say exactly what they were looking for. That would be nice to know too. And I think it really would have been interesting if Kaplan in this report had said, look, you know, there are some limitations here and a thorough and full vetting of these issues, not just in the context of women's basketball and men's basketball and the championship tournaments here, but in the broader context of gender equity and how that fits into the model of big time sports, this needs to be conducted. An investigation needs to be conducted by a body that has uh, true independence and subpoena power. And maybe that will be coming. Who knows? But I, I just say all that only to highlight the limitations of this kind of report. And again, you can go to almost any big time power five school that has been in a consequential enforcement and infractions battle with the NCAA, and they've used the same approach. And sometimes it works. When Mark Emmert was at LSU, Mark Emmert was the president of LSU, and he hired Nick Saban, made him the highest paid coach in the country. And Mark Emmert was one of the highest paid university presidents in the country. But there were some allegations of academic misconduct, and LSU comes in under Emmert's direction, and they hire some law firm to do exactly what Kaplan is doing here. And the law firm issues some recommendations and the NCAA accepted those recommendations and it just kind of went away and it wasn't a a huge thing. There's precedent for, for this type of inquiry and the use of that inquiry in informing decisions and judgments at the regulatory level. But again, this issue goes way beyond and individual institutions concern about protecting the eligibility of its players or trying to keep from being on suspension or something like that. This is big stuff. And it's stuff that's being addressed at the national level because the NCAA is taking it to the national level and asking for protections and immunities that would make it immune from any meaningful responsibility for this kind of mismanagement and misconduct. And then I would also say, and this again goes to the limitations of this kind of report and the structure of it. But in this section on the NCAA where the report is talking about who they talked to and how important it was and that the people they talked to were people that had some important stuff to say. And I'm sure that's true, but it doesn't talk about the inherent conflicts of interest that exist within the NCAA national office when you're looking to the national office and national office employees to inform your recommendations and your work product. And 
you know, the way I read this report and the way they've pitched the interested parties that they brought into the discussion and helped to frame the analysis and inform the recommendations, these are people that have, I think, disqualifying conflicts of interest if they are the primary resources you're relying on to inform your thinking. And in this section, for example, they talk about the senior management and the NCAA's president and the senior vice president of basketball, and that's Dan Gavitt, and he's an important player in this, as, as I'm going to explain when I get into the substance of the report. Then the vice president of women's basketball, the chief financial officer, and, and many others. And so I went back to the most recent publicly available form 990 for the NCAA, and I think that was from 2019, so it says 2018 numbers. But Mark Emmert brought in 2.7 million. Dan Gavitt was making 600 grand. Let's see, Lynn Holtzman, who was the president of women's basketball, almost 400 grand. You had the bookkeeper, Kathleen McNeely, at almost 700 grand. Let's see, the VP of championships, Joni Comstock, at 600 grand. And then the interim senior vice president of inclusion, education, and community engagement, 350 grand. So you're talking about millions of dollars in salary. And there was very little discussion about the fact that they had enormous incentive to preserve the status quo. So this is really a battle between status quo interests and then external interests. And who are you going to talk to? Who are you going to believe? Who's going to inform your thinking? The status quo interest looks to me drove the train on this. And when you are getting into the NCAA national office and the senior leadership team, even though there were some you know, criticisms of that structure that I'll, I'll talk about in detail because those are important, but they're symptomatic of a larger problem that wasn't addressed in the report. We'll talk about that too. But we're talking about some massive, massive conflicts of interest here. And you have to point that out. You have to, to talk about not just the conflicts of interest that exist between men's and women's basketball because of the reliance on the March Madness contract. That's obvious. And uh, again, the report doesn't talk about why March Madness is, is important and how it fits into the bigger business model philosophy of the NCAA and Miles Brand's conceptualization of the collegiate model. We'll talk about that too. But one of the biggest problems with the way that we have approached sports reform is to defer to the NCAA and its army of ridiculously overpaid national office executives as unassailable, independent, and conflict-free experts on college sports. It's, that's the problem. That's part of the problem. And that is going back to the same people who have the greatest incentive to take no action on these things and to preserve the status quo and then ask them to be the agents of change. And, you know, I talked about this in a prior episode. When you compare, say, the Rubio NCAA Wicker Moran bills that were presented in the Senate on name, image, and likeness with the Athletes Bill of Rights and who ultimately decides, because this is still operating under this broad question that really is the most fundamental question right now in college sports, and that is who gets to decide the direction of college sports. And the NCAA says it should be the NCAA and only the NCAA. It should sit on the Iron Throne, and this report plays into that narrative. But in, in comparing those Republican NCAA-friendly bills with the Athletes' Bill of Rights, 
you see that the NCAA interests want the NCAA to be in charge one way or another. And then the Athletes' Bill of Rights puts together independent oversight that specifically excludes the NCAA and NCAA employees and in-system stakeholder beneficiaries at the conference level and the institutional level too. And the reason for that is that they created this mess and they are operating from profound disqualifying conflicts of interest because of the amount of money they're making. And preserving the status quo keeps the faucet open for those people. And that is true for all of these people that the report talks about and that they relied upon. So when you go down that Form 990, the Schedule J that has all of these high, highly compensated employees, the most highly compensated employees, I mean, it's just shocking. It's just shocking. And you have former employees who haven't worked there for years, who are still getting six-figure golden parachute payouts. I mean, this has to be addressed, and you're not going to get it in a report like this. And that's part of the problem. The part of the problem, and this, the report got to this in an indirect way because of the length of these contracts. And they were looking at it in terms of the suppression of the value of women's basketball. And that's a legitimate point, one of the best points, I think, that the report made. But Another theme that came through that was that the NCAA preserves its gravy train and its bureaucratic state through these uh, long-term contracts. And they have this uh, set it and forget it mentality because when you have a contract that goes into 2032 and you have an infrastructure set up to just repeat the same thing year after year, there's zero incentive to change and people get fat, lazy, and arrogant. That's exactly what's happened at the NCAA national office. It is a set it and forget it mentality. And if the, you know, the only time you're going to get their attention is if you're doing something that poses a threat to that status quo, to those long-term contracts, to those revenue streams, and to the fat, happy, arrogant NCAA national office executives who, who the hell knows what they do? I mean, some of these titles are ridiculous. And that's where we need to be looking. The thorough forensic accounting of the NCAA national office, not on gender equity alone, but on how the money comes in, how it is spent, and importantly, how it is wasted. And the money that we're talking about here, the NCAA national office is generated exclusively by high-level elite Division I men's basketball players, the overwhelming majority of whom are African-American. So all these salaries, all this administrative overhead was paid for from the fruits of the labor of African-American laborers, African-American men. And I think the failure to address the role of the March Madness tournament and that money in the overall business model outside of this single gender equity issue between the 2021 men's and women's basketball tournaments you have the effect of delegitimizing and devaluing the contributions of the laborers who make all this possible. And that's, again, that's just an important piece to this puzzle I'll talk about when we get to it. But So that's the, the template. I've laid the foundation here. I'm going to do uh, another episode, maybe two, on this report. But I don't expect anything to come of this for all the reasons I've discussed. But I do think the report addressed a few things that are important and I think things that are fixable and things that can make an immediate difference in the way that the NCAA has suppressed gender equity rights and has suppressed the value of women's basketball. And I agree with the conclusions of that uh, sports media consultant that Kaplan hired that, yeah, there's a lot more money 
and value in that product then has been recognized. I think those recommendations on how to free women's basketball from these long-term contracts and open up the opportunity for it to receive corporate sponsorship, that's a great thing. And, and that's something that really needs to be, I think, the focus here because we're never going to know what the value in that product's going to be given the current contractual arrangements and these agreements that are locked in forever. And I've talked about that too, and I'll talk about it more when we break down the report issue by issue. So I'm just going to go ahead and close out this introductory analysis now, and then I'm going to get into some of the more specific uh, stuff in the next couple of episodes. But again, I'm going to wind up swinging back around to how the NCAA has been able to get away with this gender equity fraud for as long as it has. And that is because of its power as a propagandist. And that is exactly what it did during this name, image, and likeness debate. And having a little light shined on that, even in an imperfect process, is a good thing, I think. All right. So let's close this thing out. And I want to thank you so much for joining. It's always an honor and a privilege to have you. And I hope to have you back for the next episode of the Big Amateurism Monologues. Take care. Thank you.